I can certainly say I don't have a clue, but I can make some guesses. If you were to predict the domain or aspect of social life, where we might observe the most significant negative societal and psychological change in response to the pandemic, what would it be? These are terrible questions, by the way. Welcome back to the World After COVID mini-series of the On Wisdom podcast with Charles Cassidy and Nigo Crossman. Over the next 20 minutes, you'll be hearing insights and forecasts from some of the world's leading thinkers on what our post-pandemic world may look like for good and for bad, and what kinds of wisdom may best help us navigate this new world ahead. Hey, Charles. Igor, have you survived? I, uh, I'm continuing to survive. I'm glad to hear it. I'm glad to. Have you done, been doing anything, um, anything fun recently? You know, there's such gloom and doom in the middle of the double bill that is the negatives part of this series. Um, <laughs> have you been doing anything fun, Igor? Come on, you usually got some interesting projects going on, fixing well, a coffee machine, something like that. I have been fixing coffee machine every few weeks. Uh, we've <laughs> yeah. been cleaning the coffee machine, General taking it apart, putting it together. Yeah, um, nice. Not that I remember doing like really fun stuff. I've been doing a lot uh, on network modeling. I tried to figure out how to do that. It's uh, mm. been following people who uh, do study psychological networks and whether you can uh, conceptualize wisdom more as a network instead of as some kind of a hierarchical system. That's, so that's been fun and frustrating yeah. because it's much more complicated. Yeah, I, I can imagine. I, I've been reading a little bit about networks myself, actually, about how certain, I suppose, campaigns or movements prefer to sort of structure themselves as networks rather than hierarchies. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I've also heard, interestingly, Al-Qaeda described in a similar way. Now, networks can be for good and bad, so... That's right. mind. Yeah. Man, um, from wisdom to Al-Qaeda, that's, that's quite a bam. jump. But that's, here we go. That's the spin-off, episode, spin-off podcast. That's right. Yeah. that's right. Well, we're talking about the negative, so we have to go that's back right. to something like Al-Qaeda. I mean, Isn't honestly. it interesting that I asked you if you'd done anything fun, and within 60 seconds we were talking about Al-Qaeda. I mean, that was, that was fast work. <laughs> that's right. Well, so today we continue the negative consequences, and this is, these are answers to the question, which domain or aspect of social life will show the most significant negative societal and or psychological change in response to the pandemic. So last time uh, we already had some uh, reflections on this topic and now we will be wrapping up with a few more reflections on this topic from around the same time. This is uh, spring, summer and fall of last year. And we'll have a quite diverse uh, group which cover both the summer and the fall. Nice. Um, All right. So let's dive into the first one. Sounds good. I'd start by saying that the I think the the big obvious negative consequences are social and psychopathological, and these are not to be neglected, but they're also not so much an area that I have expertise in. One issue which I don't think is, is as important, but I think is pretty interesting and is of some importance concerns episodic memory. Um, and the issue here is that we know that differentiating context is super important for burning in effective Uh, episodic and autobiographical memories. And our normal existence offers a bunch of contextual cues that have been eliminated by living on Zoom. So in my normal life, I might teach a class and then walk from one physical location to another and have a meeting and then uh, ride my bike across town for a lunch or another meeting. Now I go from Zoom meeting to Zoom meeting to Zoom meeting, as do we all. And Uh, And lots of folks have told me that they feel like one event just blends into the other, blends into the other in their memory. And I worry that we may wind up with a kind of collective 
fog uh, in our memories for these couple of years. Okay, so that was the first one. <laughs> That's interesting. Who, who is it? This is Jeffrey Zacks, who is a professor and associate chair of psychological and brain sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. And he studies uh, perception, memory, and sort of actions of the mind. And he's um, a very well-known researcher, a cognitive psychologist. And uh, this is from uh, the middle of October of last so, year. So uh, I remember, I think, getting an email from you or speaking to you, and you maybe had just done this recording and you you flagged this one up as one you found particularly interesting, right? I remember you That's saying right. well, I was speaking to someone and they were talking about this idea of episodic memory and how it's impacted by, you know, everything's a blur. So, yeah, this this obviously spoke to you when you recorded it. I think it is one of the most unusual ideas that I heard that ended up mm. um, really resonating with me and uh, probably with a lot of people who, like me, spend a lot of time online, uh, be it on Zoom, Microsoft mm. Teams, or whatever other platform is, to keep up with work. And now to, to our general audience, episodic memory is one of the important features of just autobiographical memories. Like you, but you specifically refer to reconstructing sort of the episodes, uh, the experiences that you had, instead of just some abstract facts. And mm-hmm. autobiographical memory is, well, it's the memory about who you are and who, how you've been. And so if you don't remember who you are, and you don't remember yourself, what is it supposed to be about you in the first place? Like, what is your perception of how you weathered through the pandemic mm. if you don't have those critical elements that make up your memories in the first place? And that's the idea that I found so fascinating that I brought to you, Charles. So, so is it that, sorry, how does episodic memory link to autobiographical memory? Well, it is part of it. So, I mean, you can think of memory, more, many memories are reconstructed. Uh, uh-huh. uh, most of them actually are reconstructed. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, if you sort of think about your childhood, it's not like that you can uh, pull up some kind of analog film uh, from your head and uh, rewatch in your mind's eye a certain event from your childhood. Instead mm-hmm. of that, you have certain sort of vectors, or uh, uh, key things, keywords. Uh, that uh, you may associate with that particular situation, mm-hmm. and then you start reconstructing the experience based on those keywords. Because mm-hmm. otherwise it would be impossible. I mean, we just don't do it differently. Episodic yeah. memory refers to, well, you sort of recall a particular episode, and there you, you have a sort of richer experience of that recall. And especially for creating a more accurate representation of right. your self of your autobiographical memory, you need to have this kind of rich episodic memory. So it refers not only to the keywords, but also, you know, where were you? Whom were you mm. with? Mm. Uh, what was the smell in the air as you were walking down the street? Mm. Um, and so on and so forth. The things that include details that may not necessarily be perceived as super crucial in a given moment, mm. but nevertheless create the background. So, what I mean, I like the idea. I'm just thinking... What is the negative consequence of not being able to of not being able to recall these specific episodic memories, or not being able to form these specific episodic memories because it's all a big blur? I mean, it's, I, I kind of I think I understand the mechanism, but like, what's so mm-hmm. bad about not being able to do that? <laughs> well, let's see. Let's see. So, if I ask you, Charles, mm-hmm. to tell me exactly the highlights from the last few months, yeah, a few things will probably come to your mind. But if I ask you to recall the highlights from a year and a few months ago, mm. many more highlights may actually come to your mind. And 
isn't that a problematic that the events normally it's the opposite <laughs> normally things that you recall more recently are more vivid in your memory than okay. those that are more further away yeah it, it almost seems like you have we all got some partial alzheimer's yeah. Uh, where we don't remember who we are or how yeah. we lived or what was yeah. important for us. And yeah. that has several consequences. Number one, much easier potentially. I mean, this is just me speculating, yeah. but I do believe it would be much easier to introduce uh, some kind of misremembering through mm-hmm. misinformation campaigns mm-hmm. for all of us during mm-hmm. this period because okay. we don't, you know, like this is how it actually unfolded. I was like, oh, yeah, maybe it sounds right. Yeah, I, mean, I don't right. remember anything. <laughs> because uh, this was all a fall. I don't remember what month it was when I did X or Y. Was yeah. it in June? Was it in yeah. July? And things like that. Yeah. Number two is just like the whole concept of who you are and how you view yourself, which for some people is very, very important, may just not be as pronounced. To tell yourself or remind yourself or understand who you are, you need to think about how you behaved in certain episodes and you just can't really pick out specific episodes because it's all just one big blur is that the you know you you, that, that's you, right. you can't recall examples to remind yourself of how you behave yeah it's all it's, it all just comes together yeah yeah blur's day i've heard it called. yeah there, there is for instance some friends of mine have this idea that in addition to just hedonic experiences just a sense of pleasure uh, you have this eudaimonic experiences which is the term mm-hmm. that sort of goes back to Aristotle, some kind of a meaning in life. But in addition to that, you have this kind of psychologically rich experiences. Uh, so, you know, eudaimonic is kind of more about the essential meaning, but, you know, that's not always what it's about. Maybe, you know, that's like the final step of abstraction, potentially. Okay. And maybe the psychologically rich experiences is what we should be normal mortals aiming for in our everyday life. Mm. But if you don't recall, if it's all just in front of a computer without any context, and you can't mm. even remember because of that. So it's, it's not like that your rich life on Zoom may not be rich and psychologically stimulating, but because the context is missing, yeah, you just may not remember it as much. You will not perceive it subsequently as psychologically meaningful and psychologically rich. So you'll just have, this will just kind of not, anything that happens between now, we just won't really be able to recall it, we won't have any... It's like a database that we can't access. Um, but will that make us feel, what, empty? I mean, how's that going to, yeah. how we, yeah. Yeah, emptier, like a bit sort of like a numb. Numb. Yeah, I can yeah. believe that. <laughs> like that's what this fog is about. So, so, so it, has not, uh, it has consequences for the self or your uh, subsequent understanding who you are, which yeah. you define in terms of your experiences, past events, mm. uh, certain key moments in your life. There will be little from this last year that would have defined who we are, unless there were dramatic experiences for many people here, of course, losses of the Mm. loved ones, separations were very Mm. common. Those, Mm. of course, would define who you are. But Mm. for many other people who were just stuck at home for a year, just being on Zoom, just that Mm. fact may uh, dampen their sort of like understanding of who they are during this period. And then in addition to understanding who you are, the um, general sense of, psychological well-being will be lower Mm. because you lack this context and you lack those memories that are important in order to really assess how well you are. And also people people would probably be frustrated that they can't recall how they responded to this period as well. Yeah, well, that will come later. But yes, exactly. That's where misinformation and misleading sort of like a biased uh, biases may come in uh, much easier because you just have lower accuracy of recall. Does that strike you as a terrible 
thing, like a terrible negative or more like a, a, a interesting psychological phenomenon? Oh, it does strike me as a very terrible negative because it is really? existential. Right. Like, I mean, if you don't know who you are, and you, even like we define ourselves through our context and through mm-hmm. our memories, we define our well being not through necessarily the immediate experience of pleasure, but the mm-hmm. recall of particular significant events in our lives, or maybe our relationships, or maybe our, well, generally through experiences. Right. And if you can't, if you're a number to your experiences, then you were basically having this silent existential threat. It doesn't sound profound. You're absolutely right. But I think it is, psychologically. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. I mean, it's not something I've heard anyone talk about. I mean, people probably aren't even aware that it's, it's not a phenomenon that people will be clocking yet. I don't expect. Except that they talk about Zoom fatigue, which I think to some yeah. extent is uh, getting at that. Mm. Uh, it's just like people start complaining about fatigue that they experience by having being on Zoom the whole time. Yep. And I think what is behind it is that that you just don't get okay. those breaks, don't have don't have those episodic memories that, that can help you recharge. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I definitely feel that. Like the ver- the variety of life has become squashed it, into the same box. So, like hanging out with a friend in the evening on Zoom, having a beer, it, it's this, it feels very much like having a business meeting. You know, it's the same box. You're looking through exactly. the same square. Um, so I can imagine, yeah, you, you, your life definitely feels less rich. That's right. All right, Eagle. Um, I have another one for you. You have another one for us. Let's hear it. Because of my particular interests and research interests, people have noted a lot to me um, what wearing masks over their faces does to them psychologically. And similarly, what working at home alone does to them. Sim- and what they're referring to is de-individuation. So if you have a mask on your face, you don't really make eye contact with other people because you don't feel visible to them in the first place because half of your or much of your identity is gone. I pass people on bikes who I don't recognize to be my own neighbors. A concern would be that these feelings of deindividuation also persist beyond this pandemic where people are able to navigate in the social world with the feeling that nobody is really identifying them and the costs that come with the individuation, as you know, are things like not feeling responsible for one's particular behavior or being unusually susceptible to social norms. Okay. Wow. That's cool. I mean, I can definitely relate to that. Um, uh, who is this? So this is uh, Paula Niedenthal. And she's a professor of psychology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. For a long time, she was in France and she's one of the leading uh, experts uh, in the world uh, in research on emotions. Okay. So maybe, do you want to start by, because there's some quite abstract terms in there, do you want to start by giving us a little summary of what she was getting at? And and then I'll sure. kind of respond with yeah, so, my so first of all, feeling about it. That, <laughs> very good. <laughs> you will respond to your feelings to, uh, to a sentiment by a professor yeah. studying feelings and emotions. That's right. Very good. Uh, <laughs> This is, by the way, from uh, late June of last year, fairly early on. So Paul oh, is actually, talking about... Uh, yeah, go no, ahead. It's a, yeah, it's the day after my birthday. Just one. That's, yeah. oh, here you go. Yeah, beautiful. Another sentiment. <laughs> uh, so where should we start? Paul is talking about wearing masks and yeah. that you may not be able to see people's expressions. And we, of course, are guided by expressions of other people and how we react in 
accordance to what we see other people communicating non-verbally through their faces. Mm -hmm. And uh, some of it, of course, has been not possible over the course of the pandemic. Now, she's not talking about the mask wearing during the pandemic. She's very clear saying, look, this happens during the pandemic, but there are consequences for what may be happening after yeah. the pandemic. Because people may yeah. be getting used to wearing masks and develop a different sort of psychological reaction. There will be a psychological change because of how they adopted to interacting with other people when in mask. And what she's talking about is this idea of de-individuation. De-individuation uh, in the sense that you will not feel kind of responsible. You are just uh, an anonymous, like this hacker group where you know you don't know right. who the person is. You're just yeah. part of a mob. Yeah. And if you feel like you're part of the mob and you're not individually accountable, people often react in uh, all sorts of ways. But social psychological research suggests that some of the prejudices may come out, uh, negative attitudes towards uh, minority people may come out, a sense mm. of sort of compassion towards um, others may come out and so on. Mm. And so that's what she's to some extent talking about. So do you think, um, I mean, because it's interesting you make the distinction that she is predicting or suggesting it's a possibility that people might take this this new behavior into like the post-pandemic world. Mm -hmm. um, my question sort of relates probably to everything we're talking about here, but how realistic is it that uh, a sort of a behavior that's temporary for say two years would become an ingrained behavior post i mean could you imagine say two years after you you do a behavior for two years right, and, you behave, right, right. and then two, two years after that maybe it's just sort of symmetrical and it's kind of returned back to the original behavior because you've been doing that new behavior for two years yeah yeah so it's a very interesting question charles and i've been asked this a lot by various reporters here in ontario mm. and elsewhere like mm. when will we bounce back or will we just continue as mm. we are right now and my also answer has always been it depends it depends on how long this situation will last. Mm -hmm. It depends on whether you got a, adopted certain structural things, right. like changes. Right. Yep. Are you realizing that, you know, mask wearing in the flu season is a good thing? Right. Like people right. say now, oh, yeah, I will definitely be wearing masks like though they do in East Asia whenever there's a flu season. And yeah. especially when I feel kind of sick, I will actually, sure. or they will say, oh, I will not go to work if I just feel sick. I mean, before that, you have this mantra of you always go to work, even mm. if you're like, unless you're like really falling, uh, <laughs> you know, you can't <laughs> stand over. up, <laughs> yeah. falling over, you will continue going to work. And now people are like, well, maybe I should actually stay at home because mm. I don't want to have other people become sick too. Mm. Um, so if you know if those ideas persist and are adopted on a structural level uh, and on sort of like a collective level, you see mm. other people doing it, uh, then there may be lasting psychological changes. But I, I also think like now it becomes so political, especially maskering in North America, especially in the United States where Paul is coming from, where you know wearing a mask is almost like a sign of being a liberal. Yeah, uh, right. Republicans would be conservatives would say like a mask is only for those f snowflakes. Yeah, and so, uh, my freedom is being somehow violated right, by right, forcing right. me to wear a mask. So, so they would right away just try to go back to normal as quickly as possible. Okay. So there may be just like this political bounce back. Yeah. So I'm not sure. I think in this regard, I'm not sure this uh, prognosis especially in this more conservative strata of the population, mm -hmm. will mm -hmm. take hold. Yeah. I definitely feel I'm in a different social 
web, shall we say, when mm-hmm. when walking down the street wearing a mask. Because quite quite often, for example, something that I I have only realised now that I mm-hmm. that I did. I don't do it anymore because you can't see my face. But you quite often smile at people as you're walking past them as a way of right. just sort of. Uh, yes. slightly removing the tension that we're, we're crossing each other we're strangers I'm smiling to just yeah. indicate there's yes. no threat and I think yes. it's something we do a lot I definitely do it a lot but I think people do a lot and now I know I that facility is no longer available to me I can't yes. readily communicate to say I'm not a threat we'll be friends so I and then if all I can do is look at them without the smile that feels like a threatening uh, approach so now I just don't look at people uh, because <laughs> I don't have any options. I can't. I can't do the nice smile modifier, and I can't really look at them without the smile. So I yeah. just sort of avoid. I, so I, that's kind of interesting. She was saying that like it's going to change potentially yeah. how we yeah. relate to each other. Um, but if I if I was if it was safe and we weren't wearing masks, I think yes. I, I would fairly readily go back to smiling and, and feeling differently in that social context. Interesting. Well, I find it dic- difficult, and the only solution I can come with is just not look at or interact with anyone, which is not a great <laughs> model. <laughs> or move yeah. to the part of the country in the United States where well, you don't have fine, to wear yeah, masks. Exactly. Yeah. Well, there's lots. Yeah, I won't go into that, but yeah, um, sounds good. <laughs> all right, um, I'm gonna play you a quote. Sounds good. If we scale that up to uh, a social level, I think. One of the problems we're already seeing, but which I think is going to get worse as we progress, is the the falling apart of social cohesion. And, you know, we're seeing that in, in the US in particular. Um, and, and we're seeing identity politics rise and in, the whole in-group, out-group dynamic rise. There are people now who who are, are um, sort of pigeonholing research knowledge as um, as something that people on the left of politics believe in and charismatic narcissism as something that conservative people believe in and um, nothing good can come from that. I mean, this is an unwise society written very brightly in the sky and, and I think it's actually very dangerous and we're seeing an erosion of fundamental democratic values. Um, and, and um, you know, there's, there's a number of us um, in senior wisdom research people um, who are having private conversations about this already, and, and we might come back to that as a discussion on, a, on another day. Uh, but I do see that as, as very serious and, you know, and the way it links to populist, um, charismatic, narcissistic leaders... Who, whose position in politics is really based in in dividing people and and you know what what they call in politics dog whistle um, um, politics where you inflame people's um, fear of the unknown or fear of the other the fear of different groups in society that have different points of view and I think it's something that we just desperately have to acknowledge and then get on with dealing with. So I think that, that, that that's, this is kind of, a, I think, where, where I feel um, particularly worried um, going forward and, and where I, I feel particularly concerned that we need, we need to change the conversation and say that wisdom is not just an individual level um, uh, phenomena. It, it's also a group or a community or a society-wide phenomena. 
And so this is David Rooney, who is a professor of management organization studies at Macquarie Business School at Macquarie University in Australia. And he is one of the wisdom scholars, tries to mesh the ideas about wisdom and leadership. It's one of the last interviews actually I did last year, so right. from the 1st of December. All right, so this one of mine, and I like, I, yeah. I, you know, I liked it uh, a lot. I, you know, agreed with a lot of it. I was just, do you, have we got to that point where like research, as we know it, is something that has been claimed entirely by the left, and the right have just abandoned science? I don't think. I think that was a, perhaps a little strong, wouldn't you say? Oh uh, well, yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't know what what you mean by the left and the right, because uh, you know there there is a right and there is a QAnon. Uh, sure. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, let's say take the take extremists out of the picture. Like, I mean, I know things are getting more and more extreme anyway. You're I don't know. Maybe right. I mean, maybe. I think I think there is misinformation on both sides to some extent. But the general sentiment is that uh, maybe the uh, liberals are a bit more science minded because they are for protection of the vulnerable groups, mm. and so in the moment in which the science supports your views and the sort of like the epidemiological and health-related science probably is mm. more likely to support the views that yeah. we need a strong government that would be enacting yeah. uh, uh, certain kind of rules and shut down businesses, uh, liberals uh, would potentially be more likely to, A, use those arguments and conservatives, mm-hmm. and at the same time, more likely to believe any arguments irrespective of uh, their veracity than conservatives who would be cross-referencing and trying to find all possible holes in those arguments. Yeah, I think I think that makes sense. What you're saying is, you know, if the science aligns with your values, that's you, right. Regardless of which you know end of the spectrum you're going to be on, you're going to going to sort of trumpet it more. And I suppose at the moment, the the science seems to align with the, the more left-leaning position in terms of the pandemic. But do you think more broadly, like, science... It's just interesting, this idea that science was becoming something that more aligned with leftist values generally. I mean, I... I yeah. I mean, it's I, historically, it's interesting because I think it has been more complex, of course, and depends on the type of science. And, uh, sure. you know, like conservative means uh, maintaining status quo. So part of the definition of that mm. means the maintaining of the status quo. If you take mm. out, uh, the time of, uh, you know, the ruling of the church in uh, medieval and sort of Renaissance uh, Europe, uh, the scientific advances that went against the dogma were, of course, not very welcome by the conservatives. Mm. Uh, So from that perspective, sure. But as I said, that's partially because of certain leanings and particular alignments in a given Mm. society. I do think that uh, since uh, like the the Trump era certainly changed the landscape of the conservatives and uh, how conservatives tried to model themselves when communicating with the general public. I'm talking about conservative politicians. Mm-hmm. to get a larger audience. Mm. And Trump's position was anti-science, so many sort of more ultra-right, right populist movements have positioned themselves to some extent as anti-science. But that's, I mean, yeah, again, like I'm not, I agree with you that maybe it's an extreme position to mm. equate Trump-esque ultra-right conservatives and fringe groups with anybody who is more conservative. And what yeah. does it even mean to be conservative? Are you talking about economic conservatism or social well, conservatism? Well, yeah, many types, as as John Hyde told us, many types of conservatism. But yeah, I just, I thought it was perhaps something, I guess I'm checking myself a little bit here because I just wanted to not 
readily accept the idea that people on the right had, had given up on science. I thought that was probably not. And I don't think they yeah. have. I don't think yeah. they have. I, I know enough uh, more conservative. I mean, there are not as many uh, sure. as we talked about when we talked with John uh, on the podcast uh, mm. several years ago, I guess, <laughs> by now. Yeah. Um, in social sciences, there are not as many. But actually, it is a more of a, a North American phenomenon in some countries in Scandinavia you actually have a number of uh, more conservative for instance economists would be more conservative or political scientists to some extent could be more conservative well, that uh, would di- off- that's in different cultures I mean yeah. it's, okay so different subjects different disciplines and different cultures it'll be different yeah exactly so we, we have to be sensitive Careful. there yeah yeah, yeah. Fair. Um, all right so I'm going to um, dive on to my next and final quote of the negatives Please do. I think there's going to be more aversion towards outsiders. You know, the sort of the standard Mark Schaller stuff that shows that when people are concerned about disease, they're especially likely to want to distance themselves from people from foreign places. And that's particularly true of foreign places that they're not familiar with. Okay, so Americans and Canadians will probably get over the border between us. But uh People from strange, exotic places are going to experience more prejudice by, you know, people from other places. Uh, and so I think there's going to be more ethnocentrism, you might say. Not necessarily ethnic, but kind of, you know, geocentric. There's going to be more geocentrism. We're going to like the people around us and be averse to hanging out with people from far away, foreign places. Interesting. Um, I believe uh-huh. this in, this interview. Maybe so. Is this the other interview that was recorded outside? Yes. Out the, yes. Yes. <laughs> so, who is this? Uh, this is my friend Doug Kenrick, uh, who is President's Professor of Psychology at Arizona State University and one of the leading evolu- evolutionary psychologists in the world. And this is going back to July. July. That is late July, twenty twenty. Yeah. So I. <laughs> I'd say this is a kind of a personal reason why I brought this up. Um, okay. So obviously, pandemic, you know, you can imagine it would have an implication on how, say, North Americans might treat Chinese people because, you know, mm-hmm. um, of this sort of heritage of it all. Um, but then, interestingly, there's a little twist in the tail when there was the British variant. You remember? Right. Like, and yeah. it then, then all of a sudden, <laughs> it was like, you know, I didn't see many people, but it would come up in conversation a little bit. They're like, oh, there's this British variant. And I, it would, people would kind of look at me slightly differently. Like it was, uh-huh. you know, and I was like, well, wait a minute, what's going on here? Like, I haven't even, firstly, I haven't been to Britain in the interim. It, people seem quite keen to be able to identify the source. Oh, this is Britain. Okay, Britain has this variant. That's the problem. Stay away from British people, which is weird, especially because it happened, you know, halfway through the pandemic. There was no no link to Britain at all. And then all of a sudden there was this phrase, British variant flying around. Yeah. And so I had my very own kind of micro experience of, you know, what it's like to yes. find yourself on the other end of that. I mean, I think since then, people have kind of got their head around the idea that it, it's a variant that might have been identified in Britain, but, you know. Who knows probably, where it started? Exactly. <laughs> uh, but it was just interesting that that experience was something that I'd had myself. Oh, let me ask you this. How yeah. long did this experience last, though? Um, Until you probably, moved back pro- to Britain. <laughs> no, probably a couple of weeks, I scope, because it's just yeah. if it's in the news and it's being referred yeah. to a lot. Um, and then I think probably the story gets through 
that explanation that we just said, well, this is something that was identified in Britain and that rather than coming from Britain and then people kind of update their beliefs and they go, okay, right it's like tagged in Britain, it's not from Britain. But I think when you first start hearing the phrase British variant floating around on the news, there's this new story, this new variant. During that period that people are using that phrase, newly, there was that slightly odd atmosphere. Right. Well, it's interesting because, you know, this reminds me of when the pandemic was ravaging the United States, mm. even some comedians in the United States. I mean, I remember listening to the podcast by one the famous comedian who said well America, we are now the garb the, the, the garbage people the the the, the pandemic garbage uh, <laughs> referring to to the United States right. this was during the the height of uh, before the vaccine started of course yeah uh, and uh, that changed you know and uh, so what what's interesting is that that sort of all seems to be a constantly moving target now there are more variants and not I guess it's all variants now uh, more cases uh, in Canada than the United States, where oh, right. until recently Canadians were viewing themselves as so much more superior yeah. in terms of how they handled the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, so it is a moving target. But uh, what do you think about the general sentiment that Doug is bringing up that there will be some kind of a geocentrism that people who are close to you uh, from countries that you kind of can trust and the nearby you feel okay with, and those that are further away, you will uh, be really hesitant about those people? Well, I mean, it makes sense logically, but I suppose because people aren't generally moving around that much, it's a bit hard to tell because you're only really mm -hmm. interacting with people that are near you anyway. Like, if if maybe in a couple of years' time, when, say, people are travelling more fluidly internationally, th then you'd be able to get a read on if people still are suspicious of people from other places. But we just mm -hmm. don't really have a chance to interact with people from other places, so it's... It's hard, no, to, you don't. Yeah. hard to get that sense. But what do you think? Does it, I mean, it stacks up logically. It, it feel, you know, makes sense. Psychologically, it feels to me that it should not be true because I do plan to travel next year <laughs> beyond the US-Canada frontier. So hopefully yeah. uh, that will not manifest itself. And again, for our listeners, this is supposed to be several years after the pandemic is over. Will this last? What is the most significant yep. uh, negative right. societal or psychological change? And Doug is bringing up this idea of geocentrism. So he appears to really buy into this vision that uh, the American intelligence community brought up of one of the possibilities where it will be a separated world and people will be very very sensitive to those who come yeah. from other countries yeah so he actually did answer your question properly right he was talking about the future and i think yeah i mean i it feels likely to me but i imagine it's something that would get diluted as time passed and people travel yeah. more yeah. i do think I, I actually disagree that this I mean, not only because I have a motivation to disagree, but I do disagree because uh, of uh, the experience of this being so fleeting and ever-changing. So whatever the last sort of like major threat before it sort of all calms down will be may remain in people's minds. Maybe the first one where there's this ethnocentric association, horrible consequence, of course, because it's complete nonsense, mm -hmm. ethnocentric association of the virus with China, where, you know, Asian American people have experienced such a prejudice yeah. and like um, hostility towards mm. them. Mm. And I just last week when I was at the market here in local market, Kensington market in Toronto, I heard one homeless person screaming uh, that this Chinese brought the virus and like everybody is mm. looking at him. It's like, what is he talking about? Mm. Uh, but, uh, you know, there is a sentiment among maybe people 
well, in this case, it was a homeless person. I was just wondering whether that's underlying prejudice that pre-exists and it's just and exa- given a sort of excuse. Yeah, potentially, yeah. potentially. Yeah. But I mean, the the yeah, you're probably right. I mean, there must be something at the beginning mm. that people would mm. then just stick to. But what I'm trying to say is like it's either the first, like the primacy effect, as psychologists call it, mm. the first thing that you may remember associated with the mm. virus, or right. the last thing. But things in between, like the British variant, yeah, and even now, like people, t- yeah. yeah, people it's talk a, about it. yeah, but, yeah, you're Canadians, safe. The Canadians are going to be stuck with it. That's the Canadian variant. <laughs> wait, wait for the Canadian vi- variant uh, from yeah. the um, northern territories. That's the one that will really kill everybody. Um, uh, hopefully not. No, but I mean, I even think about the Indian variant, right? Like uh, right, right now, right, it's all right. over the news, and it's not mm. even clear how dangerous is it. Is it really lethal, or is it more of a concern? We don't know enough about it just now, mm. at this moment. And yet, it's probable that it will be exactly like the South African and Brazilian variant, where we'll just add them to the list of many yeah. different variants have evolved over the course of it. Because as Nicholas Christakis said, in one of these interviews, it's almost like a living thing, yeah. and it evolves. Yeah. And uh, you can't really count on it being exactly the same over time. No. That, by the way, is a heck of an interview. People should definitely go listen to that one in full. World after, <laughs> world after COVID.info. Is that right? <laughs> That's right. Nice. Igor, next Charles. time next time on the World After COVID miniseries, we are going to be fixing all this, right? So we've highlighted... All of it. All of it, in probably 20 minutes or less. So it's going to be um, wisdom for counteracting the negative consequences. So Some of them. Some of them, some of them. We, we've articulated some big problems, and we're going to discuss some potential ways to mitigate those on the next episode. Stay tuned. And that's it for today's episode of the World After COVID miniseries. Thank you to our listeners. Igor, big question. If people want to know more about the project, where do they go? they can go to the www.worldaftercovid.info. Please stay well and safe. Goodbye.